16.1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Amen. And we'll pause our reading there and let's open for this evening in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy endures forever. We thank you for who you are, Lord. We thank you for everything that you are, and not just that you exist in all your glory, but you exist with all the glory of your attributes, all of your goodness, all of your mercy, all of your grace as a blessing for your people. We thank you for the precious, exceedingly precious gift of salvation, and we thank you for the equally rare and precious gift of the revelation of the truth of Christ, which we know comes only by your Spirit. So tonight as we consider the work of the other paraclete or our other advocate in the Spirit of Christ, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonders out of your law. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear by your Spirit. Please cleanse our conscience from guilt of sin. Help us to grow in grace for your kingdom and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, formally, when we left off last time, we left off in John 15, 11. We've spent quite a bit of time talking about the revelation of Christ as the true vine, as is only appropriate. That is the seventh I am statement in the Gospel of John. We're going to pick up from there as we're now this evening going to move into the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see now a greater glimpse of what it means for the Father to send another advocate or another paraclete is the original word, which is the helper who is just like Christ and will take the things of Christ and bring them to our remembrance. So picking up in John 15, 11, we saw the purpose of everything that Christ taught about abiding in him and bearing fruit for the Father's glory and the foreshadowing of the pruning that the Father is going to work on us. He's going to prepare us in sanctification to bear fruit for his glory. The purpose of all of this is so that Christ's joy would be in us and that our joy would be made full. Now with that, if we have the goal at the finish line in mind, we have a taste of that glory and that joy now. The compass that guides us is a compass called commandments. And so in verse 12, Christ reminds us what keeps us in the path from wandering to the left or the right are his commandments. So 15, 12, he says, this is my commandment. And he gives us the center point here. 
that you love one another as I have loved you. We might think back to John chapter 13. It's nothing new to say we should love one another. That's been inscribed in God's word since Torah, right? Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. But Christ is showing us the escalated love commandment. Now that he has entered into the world in this messianic age, he is telling us not just to love our neighbor as ourselves, but Lord help us to love our neighbor better than ourselves. This is absolutely contrary to human nature because the first thing that we have ingrained in us is a law of self-preservation, right? Take care of myself, defend myself. Someone's attacking me, someone's hurting me. We resort to eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's our nature. But he says, no, you love each other as I have loved you. So he loved us better than he loved himself, and this is how he demonstrated it. Lord, help us to walk in this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And then he tells us, you are my friends. And so if you understand this, if, if you have received this, you are truly the friend of Christ, then you know that he has laid down his life for you. And this should remind us that it's not just agape love that is sacred and precious throughout the New Testament. This is friendship love. This is Philadelphia. That's the word he's talking about here. So if anyone ever tries to tell you that this Philadelphia friendship love is just a lesser love, then agape love, that sounds like my offspring. I'm trying to ignore that. I hear a family resemblance there. Um, so there's, there's familial love, but this is friendship love, right? He's saying we are his friends, and he's willing to lay down his life for his friends. And so you are my friends, but what tells us the, the telltale sign that we are truly the friends of Christ is just like the telltale sign of whether or not we abide in the true vine. How do you tell that someone's engrafted in Christ and it's a living branch and it's really alive? Well, is fruit popping off of it? Is it bearing fruit? Are there signs of life? Well, we are his friends if we are following him, if we're obeying him, if we're living according to his word. You are my friends if I, you do what I command you. Now, this is not, again, earning salvation. This is a demonstration that you've already received it. And he's going to talk about what actually caused this friendship from the beginning. Now, this puts us in a greater status than all the rest of the unbelieving world. And this is a crucial distinction. No longer do I call you servants. We're not just obeying a law as though we don't have a, a relationship here. It's not just a legal weight of his commandments. No, this is a friendship. This is a trust. There is submission here. But this is rooted in friendship. So no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But he's giving these discipleship lessons to his friends. This is a private audience with the master in the upper room. He's giving greater revelations to those who are truly his friends. And he's revealing things to you and I that he is not revealing to the unbelieving world. And what we're going to see tonight is that one of the things that makes all the difference in the world is that the world can't receive the spirit that gives the deeper revelations. But if you and I have been born again by the spirit, then we're going to receive these deeper revelations as the friend of Christ. He says, for all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Now back to this idea that we're not earning his friendship. We're not earning salvation. How did all this start? Who initiated this friendship? when we were dead in trespasses and sins? 
Who initiated this friendship when we were at enmity because we were enemies with God? 15, 16. You did not choose me. That's controversial. That's very controversial, right in the heart of East Texas, right? You think you chose me. You did not choose me, is what Jesus said, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So at the human level, yes, does it appear that we are choosing? Does it look like we're giving our lives to Christ? Is this a volitional choice that people make? Cognitively, yes, we can recognize that. We live that out. But what caused that? The ultimate cause was not us choosing Christ. It was Christ choosing us and him rooting us in him. And that's why the birth of the Spirit. So we'll talk about prayer here in a moment. Like little children crying out to our Father. Um, But up until this point, what thoughts do we have? What questions come to mind? This gives a whole new meaning to friend. Yes. Does friend in Greek mean the same thing as we, we use friend today? Facebook friend. Mm. Come on, brother. <laughs> Come on, brother. <laughs> I, I once heard someone say, um, comparing ancient friendship to modern friendship, you know, you see these people with like 50,000 followers online. Right? A follower is not a friend, first of all, okay. um, in terms of social media. Now, More commonly, you'll see, you know, someone has 300 friends on Facebook. Someone said, hey, look, no one has 300 friends, right? (laughs) You might, if you have a lot of true friends, you might have a dozen friends, right? A couple dozen. Um, A lot of people have a handful of friends, close friends. So in the ancient world, when we think about friendship, this is much closer to almost like a family tie. Really, much more intimate. There's a, a lot of reciprocations. Far deeper. It's far deeper. These are friends that would be willing to sacrifice for each other, which is what we're exactly what we're seeing here. So that's very very helpful. Yeah. Other thoughts. I think this translation is interesting because what I've read in the past, the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And this one says, "So whatever you ask in my name, He may give it to you." Oh, I see. Yes, this is actually really just a a piece of English grammar here that's kind of obscuring that. But this is so that, this is the outcome. This is basically what is secured. We would call this a result clause. The result is he may fulfill whatever you ask. This sounds like it's more unsure in modern English, but the original grammar is, is essentially saying this would be the result. Whatever you ask, we could put it there, he will give to you is essentially the same idea. Now, what does that lead us to? That doesn't mean whatever our whims or desires are. This is obviously tied to everything that we just talked about. If we're truly his friends, if we're truly walking in his commandments, and ultimately, I think the clearest text that explains this, where is it found? What's our best commentary on the Upper Room Discourse? 2 John and 1 John and 3 John, that's right. So if we go to 1 John 5, I think this is the very, very best commentary on the prayer passages in the upper room. This is where he really expounds what this, is, uh, what this is conditioned on. This is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So to ask in the name of Christ is to ask with confidence. It's asking knowing that he hears us. 
It is praying through the mediation of Christ. That's praying in Christ's name, under his headship, as his friends, all those things we just talked about. The people that live by his commandments and so on. We have confidence we'll receive these things, but the key there is that by asking in his name properly, we would be asking according to his will for him to hear us. That's crucial. That's crucial. So it's not asking for carnal things. It's asking for godly things. And that's the great distinction. So that's good. Other thoughts? Other questions? Yes? I have a question. Um, if you, I mean, we can all ask for salvation from people, but that's not necessarily, I mean, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It doesn't mean that God is going to necessarily do that, right? Yes. And so this gets into the deeper layer of what is the revelation of God's will. There are certain things that are known about the will of God, and there are certain things that are not fully known to us. So we have both the revealed will of God in Scripture, and we have what is called the hidden will of God. We could detail this further, but this is the main distinction that we need here. Now, between these two things, we know that there are certain things that God has revealed. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, even your sanctification. There's an example. So God has revealed, if you're a believer, his will for you is to grow in sanctification. So if you ask for particular virtues and fruits that you could bear and aspects of your sanctification, you know. That is his will for you. It is going to happen. And he's going to work it out through the trials and trainings and lessons of your life. You could, you could pray that out with complete confidence that that will take place. Now, in terms of the hidden will of God, there are certain things that God is going to do that he does not disclose to us because this is his prerogative. This is his plan. Now, what he has revealed is he's going to save all of his elect people. All the people that he has chosen from before the foundation of the world, all the names of those that are written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world, the ones that he chose, he will save. He's revealed that, but what's the hidden part? He hasn't revealed their names to us. So we know he's saving people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. We just don't know the names. Now, why would God do such a thing? How would we behave if we knew the names? <laughs> we got real problems if we knew the names. Because God wants us to be witnesses to the whole world. He knows the names. That's right. Anderson spelled S-O. <laughs> That's right. He knows the spellings. He knows the spellings. So we're being chosen here. We're being charged by the exalted Lord. He's giving his commandments to us. And he commands these things so that we would love one another. I want to pause right here before we go into verse 18. I know, it's exciting. Um, to recognize here that what we're seeing is we're seeing demonstrations of the sovereign authority of Yahweh, the God of Israel, right here. He stands and delivers the commandments of God to his people in the New Covenant, Sure as he delivered them to the people of Israel at Sinai. He has said at the beginning of this chapter, he is the great I am, right? Remember, this is the name of Yahweh, Jehovah. 
from the Old Testament. He's the one who's choosing. That's what we've just gone through. He's the one who's charging. He's giving the commandments. He's chosen his people. He's commanded his people. And now what he's preparing us for is he's choosing us to walk in the footsteps of Christ. Because if we're in union with a suffering servant that fulfills the will of God through his obedience, then what we have to realize in the upper room is that we're being called to live the life of a suffering servant that's called to fulfill the will of God through obedience. So we will be partaking in Christ's blessings, but we will also be partaking in the world's cursing because we're in union with him. So we get all the good stuff that the Father is sharing with Christ, but we get all the trials and tribulations that the world is sharing with Christ from the unbelieving world. And so he explains, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If we were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He's still building on the lesson that we're more than uh, servants, essentially. And we still have that role of following the master. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So we see a great enmity between the world and between the church. Now that's something that's not new. That's something that's been promised since the very beginning, that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman, that's the believing community of faith, and the seed of the serpent, that's the unbelieving world. There's enmity between these two bodies. There's a body of Christ, and in the language of 2 John, a body of the Antichrist, we would say. Now, what's amazing about this is, as while we still have these trials and tribulations, this is one way that the Lord keeps his people from turning back to Egypt. Because if we didn't have this enmity with the world, with all the world's attractions, all the world's allures, if it was easy for us to be returning to the world, this would be very, very difficult for the children of God. But one thing that we notice is, even in those moments, if we're stumbling, if we're lapsing, if the spirit in you is different than the spirit that's in the world, there's ultimately going to be a clash when we're dwelling in the world instead of really fellowshipping in the body. Because at the end of the day, no matter how much she may look alluring and attractive, Babylon still hates Israel. Egypt still hates Israel. And so if you're part of the people of God, we've been redeemed and we're under the authority of a new master. We're bought out of Egypt, so to speak. Out of the world is actually the... The context here in the new covenant and so we're under the headship of a new master since the world hates our master it's going to hate us it's the concept of the two kingdoms we live in redemptive and the common kingdom so we're, we live in the world but again there's that antithesis that we are um, there's a, the world's always at odds with us and yet we're called to live in it and to help it thrive and flourish even yes as members of the redemptive kingdom of christ Yes, and therein, therein lies the challenge is there will always be enmity between the seed of the woman, the believing community, and the seed of the serpent, the unbelieving community. But we, as the body of Christ, are still called to be a blessing toward the unbelieving world. So if they're cursing us, we're called to be bringing a blessing to them, even to the point that they would reject it through persecution and through tribulation. All these things they do, why? On account of my name, says Jesus, because they do not know him 
who sent me. So here we have a great reminder that if they don't have Christ, they're not going to have the Father. Why is it that they would not recognize Christ? It's because they don't know the Father that sent him. So the great dividing line is, of course, back to whether or not we have faith in Christ or not. Now, there's, there's other things we could talk about mm -hmm. here as we talk about the exposing of sin. But any, any other questions up until this point? That's a, it's a complicated matter in our engagement with the world there. Any thoughts on that? Okay, we'll press a little further here into verse 22. Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. What can this mean that they would not have been guilty when we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? We know that all are born in trespasses and sins, conceived in iniquity. What is he really saying here? Well, he's building on a teaching from earlier at the end of John chapter 9. The reason that he came, it's not just that they would not have been guilty in the absolute sense. In this context, he's saying they would have had an excuse to claim that they were not aware of their guilt. But now that he has come and revealed God's word, they have no excuse for their sin. This comes back to the end of John 9. So you can head over there if you want to meet me there. The end of John 9, we're looking at the last few verses here. This is John 9, 39 to 41. It's a bit of an enigmatic statement here because there's a great reversal taking place between vision and blindness and between blindness and vision. So Jesus said, for judgment, I came into the world. Now, this is judgment in the fullest sense. This is a judgment that's going to render a verdict of salvation to his people, and it's going to render a verdict of condemnation to those who are not his people. He came into the world so that those who do not see may gain their sight, so that they would see, right? And so that those who see may become blind. Now, this is one of those many parabolic statements of Christ. This is a very dense, rich teaching that's happening here. And essentially what this means is that those who think they see, those that claim that they see, are going to be exposed and are going to be proven to actually have blindness instead of sight. Because if they haven't been born again by the Spirit of God, they can't even see the kingdom of God. He's building on the vision teachings all the way back from John chapter 3. Now, the context bears this out because he's got a whole group of people who are claiming that they see perfectly according to God's scriptures. So in response to this, some of the Pharisees nearby hear what he's saying, and they perceive on a superficial level what he's saying. They claim that they are seeing. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? What are they getting at? you got all the experts of Torah, experts of Old Testament and the law standing by, and they're saying, oh, are you saying we're blind then? Because we're steeped in the scriptures. So how does Jesus respond? It's a little spiritual judo here with the reversal that takes place. Well, he says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, right? This means they would have an excuse for their sins. If they really had never had any culpability before God, if they were never in his image, if they'd never heard his word, any of these things, right? If they truly were blind, well, then they wouldn't be responsible at all for what they're doing. But unfortunately, they're claiming that they see. They're claiming that they see clearly. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. 
because they're claiming to see, but they don't see Christ for who he is. So they've staked their spiritual claim, but they're not standing on the rock of Christ. They're still in the shifting sand. So this is the great issue. So there's a great reversal that's taking place here. It's actually very similar to what we have in John 15. But questions on this passage here? No, but this reminds me of uh, Jason, your Sunday school, how we got the revelation, and you know how we don't see our sin or guilt until we, the Word has revealed to us. And I think that seems like what the Pharisees are. They just have that common Genesis revelation, and now that Jesus has exposed, now they're beginning to see. Yes. It's a wonderful connection. If you want to look into this further, you could look into Psalm 19. It's a classic passage on the distinction between general and special revelation. And Romans 1. An amazing statement of both general and special revelation. In both cases, what you would see is that all humanity has enough knowledge and enough light because we're made in His image. We have enough light that we're responsible for our sins, and we all know enough to condemn us. But apart from his saving word of the gospel, that's the special revelation that comes in through the gospel message of grace and mercy and repentance and forgiveness. That's the message that has the power to save us. So here you have a people that are not just guilty by virtue of being in God's image, but you have a group of people that are searching the scriptures daily, claiming that they have sight, even from his special revelation, but they've missed the gospel message. So on the deepest level, they are fully responsible. They're rejecting Christ to the face. And so this is something that's going to be unpacked immediately after this. Why do they hate Christ? Because whoever hates me, he says, hates my father also. These are people who claim to see God. They claim to love God, but they've got God in human flesh standing right before their face, and they hate his guts to the core. So they don't love God. God's in human flesh right in front of them. And so one of the reasons why Christ did such massive sign miracles that he did was to take away every excuse from those that are rejecting Christ. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, healing the lepers, opening the eyes of the blind, doing these radical messianic works, coming as Yahweh in the flesh, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Now, why did all this happen? Because there's a playbook from the Old Testament that Christ is operating and executing right here in the New Testament, which is that the scriptures must be fulfilled. All of this is taking place according to God's plans and God's prophecies. But the word that is written in, look how he says this, their law. They're searching the scriptures daily. They have this right there in their law, which they claim is their playbook for their spirituality. But what's written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. He was perfect, holy, harmless, and undefiled, and they still hated him to the core. John's been telling us this since the beginning of his gospel in chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own received him not. They're going to reject him and crucify him. Now, there's two Old Testament passages that pop up here. Yeah, someone had a question. I was going to ask, what was the reference on that? Bless you. <laughs> this is the question we must ask. This is the key. 
Anytime you see this for everyone, this is what we call a pointer passage. When it says, as it is written, or it's written in the law, it's written in Isaiah, it's written in the Psalms, we have to go back. Because Christ is pointing us back. He's telling us, if you open up the playbook, you'll understand what play he's running right now. And so there's actually two Old Testament passages that use this language, both from the Psalms. This is one thing that the New Testament writers do, is that sometimes they actually combine prophecies together that are being fulfilled in harmony, but especially when they're coming from the same book of the Old Testament. So these are both coming from the Psalms. And uh, there's actually reason to believe that one of them is more in the foreground. And I'll explain why. But both of these psalms are probably in mind. So notice the language in John 15, 25. Of course, they hated me without a cause. Psalm 35, 19. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. This is that enmity from his enemies. Wrongfully his enemies. And let not those who wink the eye... Let not those wink the eye who hate me without a cause. Let's take a look in Psalm 35. So just a quick overview. I'm just going to tour through the context here and hit some of the key points as we lead up to verse 19. What's the opening prayer from Psalm 35? Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight with me. So there's a warfare There's a conflict, and he's saying, Lord, be on my side, right? Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Now, what we learn in John's gospel is not only are they seeking his life, they're going to take his life, but what has he prayed? Let them be put to shame and dishonor if they're his enemies to their last breath. For without cause they hid their net for me. Notice the language. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Look at verse 11. Malicious witnesses rise up. What is happening in the trials by night as Christ is heading toward the crucifix? False witnesses rise up to condemn him without reason, without cause. They ask of me things that I don't know. They repay me evil for good. There's the sin and the betrayal of God's perfect Messiah. At my stumbling, verse 15, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. This is almost like the context of Psalm 22. Everyone gathered around the cross, wagging the head. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction. Again, so much like Psalm 22. My precious life from the lions. From the lions. Now, God is going to rescue him out of death. We've studied that before. That's the redemption of Christ. That's bringing him. But it's not before he dies, it's out of his death that God is going to bring him because he has to lay down his life for his friends. Then he will praise, then he will glorify God. I will thank you in the great congregation so that it will lead others to worship as well. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. So here's our citation that we see in John 15. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. Let not them wink the eye, right? This is a little, a little victory move. This is the victory dance of the ancient world. Don't let them wink the eye who hate me without a cause. So very clear quotation. All the context from this playbook is unfolding right in John chapter 15. Now I have one more to look at. One more to look at. Any thoughts on this, this passage before we go to Psalm 69? Thoughts on this one? Psalm 35 is about Christ. Yes, 100%. He's the Davidic king. That's right. He's the final Davidic king. Let's look at Psalm 69. We'll come back 
to the beginning of Psalm 69 here. We'll notice the same language popping up. Psalm 69, verse 4, this is the passage that Christ is referring to. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Remember, you can think about how radical it is that he comes to all the people of Israel that are waiting for the Messiah of Israel. And by the time we get to the upper room, there's going to be 120 disciples left who stuck by him and held to his faith after he came to all the nation doing his sign miracles. More than number are the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. Notice the context is the same. Those who attack me with lies. The false witnesses rising up against him. Now there's reason to believe that of the two, Psalm 35 and Psalm 69, this psalm is probably the primary reference that's in the foreground. This is the main one that we need to look at of the two. Because John has already had Psalm 69 in mind since John chapter 2. Look at what he says in verse, well, let's look at 8. He comes to his own and his own don't receive him. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. This is him among his own people, but his own receive him not. Why? Because, or for, zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Is this not exactly what he's saying in John 15? Why did they hate Christ? Because they hate God. That's the issue. If they reproach God, their reproaches are going to fall on God's representative right there. They all fall on Christ. And he bears the burden. Now, there's... Two layers here in verse 9. Zeal for your house is consuming. You can think of someone who's so consumed by their zeal. He's like setting his face like a flint. He's going to do the Father's will perfectly, right? The zeal is just, he's consumed with zeal for his Father's house. But on the other hand, the wordplay is the zeal that's coming from his Father's house is going to devour him. And he's going to be put to death by the people that are running his father's house. Where does this come from? This comes back from John chapter 2. So we can see this beginning in John 2, and we could go back to verse 13. Now we have a great foreshadowing here, and again, this is all tied to Psalm 69. When is this going to take place? The Passover. Why does John tell us? Because this temple conflict at the Passover in John chapter 2 is foreshadowing the temple conflict at the Passover that we're about to see in John 18, John 19. He's going to be right at his father's house on the Passover, and there's going to be another temple conflict. So when he goes up to Jerusalem in the temple, what does he find? All the money changers, the robbers in his father's house. So what does he do? This is not the Jesus in the children's storybook Bible, right? The soft Jesus that they're selling with the marshmallow peeps in his hands and all this other nonsense. It's making a whip of cords and driving out of the temple with all the sheep and the oxen, everyone that was selling in his father's house. And he pours out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Can you imagine him stepping in? Don't want your money. I want glory for my father's name, right? You think you're in here worshiping, you're robbing the people. You're acting like you're worshiping. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise, right, or a house of trade. Then his disciples remembered what was written. This is from Psalm 69, all the way back in John chapter 2. 
zeal for your house will consume me. Now, once again, he's filled with zeal for his father's household. But on a darker level, what it's saying is that the zeal that they have for the legalism and all their false traditions of the temple is going to devour Christ. And so what is the sign? Destroy this temple and in three days he'll raise it up. They're thinking of the physical temple, but he's speaking about what? The temple of his body. What's another way we could say that? They're thinking of the old vine of the brick and mortar temple. But he's talking about the true vine of the resurrection of Christ and his body. And so it's after his resurrection that the disciples remember that he taught this. And they remember the scripture that he'd spoken. They remember there was a playbook that was telling them all these things had to be fulfilled beginning with Psalm 69, right? They remembered these scriptures after the resurrection. Now here's the million dollar question as to why they would remember these kinds of scriptures after the resurrection. What's the difference maker that allows them to remember these scriptures after he's risen? the pouring out of the Spirit that he said he was going to send to them. After his resurrection, he sends the Helper who takes the things of Christ and brings them to their remembrance. That's exactly what it says. After he's resurrected, they remembered once he's raised. And so this implies they will have the blessing of the Spirit from Pentecost. So back in John 15, 25, they hated me without a cause. This is a scripture we've been dwelling on since chapter 2. If we read through the whole gospel from start to finish, if we connect the dots, we read carefully. How is it that we understand the fulfillment of the Old Testament in its fullness? It's because the helper is going to come and he's going to teach us. He's going to bring the truth to understand what's being fulfilled. They hated Christ without a cause, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. That brings us to the end of John chapter 15. There's a couple other things we need to add here. But what thoughts do we have up until this point? Any questions here? Just that... I think probably everybody knows, you know, Psalm 69, Psalm 35, the original writer, the context is David. Yes. He's a type of Christ. There's imprecatory overtones. Imprecatory is the idea of God, get them. They're my enemies. You get them. And uh, so um, when, when Christ is fulfilling those and the disciples are remembering the original context, the original person to which those things were happening was David and remember the context of Saul and those kinds of things. Yes. Yes. So if we understand that movement from David, the first Davidic king, to Christ, the final Davidic king, then what we expect is greater betrayal with the final Davidic king, greater persecutions, right? All those things are taking place now according to that playbook that began with the Psalms of David. So with that, we have the coming of the Spirit, and we have a reason why the Spirit is coming, and he's bringing this greater revelation. Now, there's a couple of things that are happening here, but what we need to focus on is that this is a greater revelation to secure God's people for trials and tribulations. For trials and tribulations. This is where we need to be careful with our theology, 
So in John 16, we're going to come across a word, flipsis. And this is what the disciples are about to experience. What is flipsis? It's the Greek word for tribulation. So if we have a theology that says, well, there's going to be a tribulation thousands of years in the future. There's going to be a tribulation, but I'm going to be out of the way of it. There's going to be a tribulation, but I'm not going to have any suffering. What he's preparing his disciples to go through is suffering and trials and flipses, tribulation. Now, there is room for a greatest tribulation in the last hour. There's room for the greatest apostasy when the final Antichrist shows up. I do believe all those things are going to happen. But please believe we have trials and tribulations now. If you don't have room for this in your theology, you already feel it in your own life. You do. Because if you're in union with a suffering servant, you're going to take on the image of a suffering servant. So why is Christ telling us all these things? To keep us from falling away through the trials and tribulations. What's about to happen? They're about to be excommunicated from their family churches, which in the first century was being put out of the synagogues. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So much is happening here. What you have in the nucleus of this one verse is the unfolding of the history of everything that's about to take place in the book of Acts. The helper is going to come. The spirit will be poured out. It'll empower the apostles. They'll be his witnesses. They'll have power from on high. And what's going to happen? They're going to be catching beatings left and right for the sake of the name of Christ. Going through trials and tribulations. Empowered to endure through it. So the lesson here is God's not taking us around the trials and tribulations. He's designed us to go through the trials and tribulations because he's teaching us to walk in the footsteps of Christ. If they hated him, the world will also hate us. And so this happened closest to home in the first century in the persecution between the first century synagogues and the church. So can you imagine the religious zealotry that says, Lord, I'm serving you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then murders an apostle of Christ right there. Murders a disciple of Christ. Says, Lord, I do this in service to you. The madness. This is an antichrist mode of thinking. And so we even saw this with someone like the apostle Paul who was so filled with zeal, he was ready to put someone to death for what he thought was the truth, thinking that he was serving God when he was persecuting the body of Christ. But God can still have grace on people from the same bottom of the same barrel as all the rest of us. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor his Messiah, right? Jesus says, nor me. But I have said these things to you, Jesus says, speaking to his disciples, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Did not see it, say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So Christ is about to depart from them physically and he's going to send the spirit to be with them. Now, why does he have to secure them? Because imagine what's going to happen if there's this great conflict, if there's these painful, excruciating trials and tribulations. If they don't know that this is all according to plan, eventually someone's going to start wondering, am I really in the will of God? 
Should I really be suffering this much? Should it really be this painful? Walking in the footsteps of Christ? He's empowering them and he's preparing them because they're not going around the tribulations. They're going through the tribulations. And so when he was with them at the beginning, they can just follow in his footsteps physically. They're along for the ride. But when he's about to physically depart, they need to know from the bottom of their hearts that these trials and tribulations are ordained for their good. So Jesus explains, now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks where are you going? So this is where, on the physical level, they're saying, hey, Jesus is being taken away from me. I'm going away. Basically, the response of the disciples, this is like the young, the young infant losing the bottle, right? Don't go, don't go, don't go, don't leave, don't leave. No one's saying, what are you going to accomplish when you depart, right? What good is this going to bring? How is God going to use this for good? What blessing is this going to work out? If you really love us, then departing must somehow bring a blessing. But no one's asking, what's this going to accomplish? They're just saying, don't go, right? No one's asking, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, he's telling them the truth, right? I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage. That's the one thing they never expect. How can it be to their advantage that Christ is departing from them physically? It's because they're going to have a greater measure of his spirit in the post-Pentecostal age. This is where we need to be careful with our theology. I'm not Pentecostal, but I am fully post-Pentecostal. I'm in the post-Pentecostal church where the Spirit has already been poured out. The Helper has already arrived. The advantage is already here for the church, that after he's gone away, that is, ascended to his Father, enthroned on high, pouring out the new covenant blessing, which is called the promise of the Spirit. The advent of the Spirit that's going to empower the church to literally go into all the world and make disciples under the name of Christ, his Father, and the Spirit. That's the age I'm living in. I am post-Pentecostal. So when he goes away, the Helper comes. If he did not go away, he said the Helper would not come to you. But since he goes, he will send. In our last section for this evening, we're going to consider then the profile of of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what he's really accomplishing here for his people. But what thoughts do we have up until this point? Helper is paraclete. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So those of you that remember from our earlier themes, that word paraclete is sometimes the better word to hold on to because it has all those rich meanings and applications. Advocate, helper, exhorter, encourager trial, defense, attorney, right? All these things that he is for us. That's really the word behind this, the paraclete. It's very good. Yeah, so it's a full, it's a rich blessing. Other thoughts? Okay, so let's look at at least these three main things. This is the profile of the ministry of the Spirit of Christ. When he comes, primarily he's going to do these three things. Number one, He's going to convict the world concerning sin. Number two, he's going to convict the world concerning righteousness. And number three, he's going to convict the world concerning judgment. Now, these are very rich and dense teachings here. We do have to unpack these things. You could preach three sermons on three verses right here. No doubt about it. This is incredibly deep. This does require some unpacking. What does it mean when he says, 
The Spirit is going to convict the world concerning sin. Jesus starts to unpack this for us. Well, concerning sin, because here's why they're going to be convicted of sin. You would think because they didn't keep God's law. Because they didn't obey. They didn't follow the Ten Commandments. They didn't love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They didn't love their neighbor as themselves. The pillars of Torah. It's not what he says. It's very radical here. Why are they convicted of sin? Because they don't believe in Christ. That's the proof that convicts them. That's what exposes the guilt of the world. Now, why is this so important? Because he's coming to a devoutly religious Jewish people who are outwardly religious. They know all 613 commandments of Torah, and they're trying to keep them every day, tithing the little leaf clippings from their mint garden on their windowsill, right? Down to the smallest letter of the law, they're trying to keep 613 commandments of God's law. And so they're essentially standing and saying, who could convict me of sin? But God is standing there in the flesh who's fulfilled the law truly that no one else was able to actually accomplish. And they don't believe in God's Messiah, which is essentially calling God a liar. It's proving that if they don't love Christ, they don't love the Father. If they hate the Father, they end up hating Christ. So this is exposing their sin because the difference between salvation and condemnation is not our obedience because none of us have enough of it. The difference is whether or not we have a savior and a mediator who's made an atonement and died in our place to take away the punishment for our breaking the law. This is the difference. So they're exposed because they don't believe in Christ. Now concerning righteousness, what do we see? It's not teaching how to fence the law or keep the traditions of the elders or how to have the perfect um, denomination. Are the Pharisees right? Are the Sadducees right? Are the Essenes right? Are the Zealots right? It's not denominational. It's not traditional. It's not even legal. Again, they'd be thinking of righteousness as how do I perform this law correctly? How do, in their world, they're thinking, how do I practice Judaism perfectly? That's righteousness in their eyes. But again, he's saying, no, righteousness is Christ-centered. The Christ-centered revelation of righteousness. They're convicted concerning righteousness because Christ goes to the Father and they do not see him any longer. This is referring to the ascension of Christ and the enthronement of Christ. This is him being received into his glory and enthroned and activating his kingdom. It does imply it's, it's a pregnant promise. Soon the Spirit will be poured out. That's what's going to follow this but primarily because the Father receives Christ because of his ascension. This is convicting the world that Christ has this righteousness. It's vindicating Christ by his resurrection and by his ascension. And then finally, we, it's the conviction of the world concerning judgment. Because, and again, there's many different things that they may have been thinking. What would they expect concerning the conviction of judgment? But what he says is because the ruler of this world is judged. So what does it mean to be convicted of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged? This is quite radical, and if you want to study this out further in your own study, you could go to Revelation 12, and you could see the fall of Satan from the heavenly courtroom immediately 
after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Revelation 12 is a key passage to understand what's happening here. When Christ goes to the Father, he ascends and he takes the throne. And what happens? When Christ goes up, someone comes down. Who comes down in Revelation 12? Satan comes out of the heavenly courtroom where he's been accusing all of God's people before the throne of God. You remember the book of Job when he comes? He says, your servant Job, I've got accusations against him. He was in the heavenly courtroom making accusations against God's people. That happens in the Old Testament era. But once Christ goes up, Satan comes down. And he can't make accusations anymore. Now, he is down here on the earth. He does disturb the world. He does get in people's ears. But we should have perfect confidence because he can't make any accusations where it matters. At the throne of God, in the courtroom of heaven. He's been cast out of the court. Why? Because once Christ has made the atonement, ascended into heaven, and taken the throne, it is case closed. There's no more debate. There's no more cross-examination. There's no second rebuttal. Christ makes the atonement. He takes the throne. The Father is saying, case closed. And what this actually indicates is that the ruler of this world has been judged. He's been cast out of the heavenly courtroom. We actually even see uh, shadows of this back in John 12. You could search Revelation 12 or John 12. You can see more of this. <clears throat> Satan's descending like lightning. But what this means, and our final thought for tonight, the difference that it makes is that on a deeper level, this secures the judgment that's going to fall upon Satan in the lake of fire. Because God only has one Messiah who's making one atonement one time. And when he goes up and his atonement is received by the Father for his people, the great high priest makes atonement for God's elect people, he does not make atonement for a single angel that rebelled against God. And so once that atonement is finished, there's no second atonement that's going to happen. And no atonement for Satan has been received. The ruler of this world is eternally under judgment. And he has no way out of it. Now, what's our best commentary on these passages? This is very rich. This is very dense. Our best commentary on the Upper Room Discourse is not even John MacArthur, right? There's an even better commentator than John MacArthur. And it's John the Apostle himself. So our final verse, this is still part of our final thought, comes from 1 John 5. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, that is Satan. Now, so the older translation says the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. Now what's happening to God's people? For God's people, the one who have this atonement, the one who is born of God, is protected the evil one can't even touch him. He's cast out of the heavenly courtroom. He can't touch your case, right? He couldn't, he couldn't affect damnation for Job, and he can't do it for you. But as for the world, the world is in the clutches of the evil one. So what this leads us to is the question of, who do we follow, and where are we going? Because the world, whether they know it or not, they've been co-opted, and they're following the prince of this world, which is the evil one. And they're following him to his final destination. 
and his final resting place. But if we're following Christ, we're going to go through this tribulation to the final place that he's prepared for us to be in his presence and his Father's presence. So with that, let's close for today in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you, Lord, for your mercy endures forever. We thank you for the great and profound and lofty revelations that you've given to us, Lord. We thank you for the practical teachings that you give to us for how to navigate this life day by day. That if we're going through trials and tribulations, this is precisely according to your plan. You've given us your word to prepare us. You've given us your spirit to empower us. And if trials and tribulations are hitting us and hurting us, Lord, then we need to know that Christ took the hit for us first and that we're called to walk in his footsteps. And with that, Father, we pray that you would secure us by your spirit, cleanse our conscience from guilt of sin, teach us your wisdom to walk in your ways, and help us to discern the difference between the attacks that are coming from the enemy or the unbelieving world and the good things that you have ordained for us and the sanctification and the pruning that you have ordained for your people as we move into closer conformity with Christ. So please bless us as we go our way. We pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.